every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. The outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for 33 years. And if you follow along in our home maintenance calendar that you can get for free simply by letting us know the address you'd like us to mail it to, you know that today, Thanksgiving weekend, November 27th, we've got Farmer Greg in as we do the fourth Saturday of the month, and we're talking edible landscape. And Farmer Greg, before we get into your talking points that we're already not going to get done anyway, because we never get through all your talking points, <laughs> right. you always have so much information to bring, I have to ask you a question about primary water. If you missed our conversation last week with Jay Harper, for anyone else listening, the concept of primary water I stumbled across a couple months ago, and I've asked everybody about it, uh, SRP, CAP, nobody's heard of this concept. The concept is that below the Earth's crust and the mantle, water is constantly being created in steam form, and it's seeping up into our Earth through the cracks in the crust. It explains how... You know, basically natural wells happen. You know, if you right. go up to Horton Springs, you've got this endless amount of water coming out of the mountain. Well, that water's not there. That water's not coming from above it. You know, otherwise it would have run out pretty quick. When we drill a well to pump groundwater, we have to mechanically pump it. So how is this spring constantly producing water? Well, you know, it's it's all the steam pressure from the magma pushing this to the surface. And the concept of primary water states that there's one to three times the ocean volume of water inside the mantle that's constantly that being created. What, have you ever heard of this? Uh, I have not. When you asked me about it a couple of weeks ago, I looked it up and I found their website, primarywaterinstitute.org, and I did some reading on it. So that's about the extent of what I know about it. But from a scientific perspective, I'm a scientist. I've been studying plant biology and earth sciences since high school it makes perfect sense it does and nobody's talking about it it right. blows my mind now and and the neat thing is um he's not saying that we need to find out how to drill down into the the mantle which you know the earth's crust is like what 20 miles deep you know so yep. <laughs> he's like you don't need to do that you just need to find the cracks and the fissures where mm -hmm. it's already close enough to the surface we just need to punch into those little cracks and fissures to to produce these wells and you know if if that's the case you know you could go all along the colorado river shed poke a half a dozen of these uh holes and just let the water naturally pour into the river mm. shed to fill lake mead back up mm. and not mm -hmm. wait on the rain and the snowpack it, it's absolutely fascinating so anyway yeah, i is. just i wanted your initial reaction to it because it, <laughs> like you said it makes perfect sense when you hear it You've never heard this concept before. You know, right. I don't know why it's not more widely talked about or, or shared. But anyway. Mm. Yeah, so, I don't know. That makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. New project for Rosie on the house. We'll get us a <laughs> primary <laughs> water somewhere here in Arizona. Primary sounds water like well. It's a new, <laughs> sounds like it's a new project for Romy on the house. There, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> uh, there's a, a video and the one of the German uh, guys that, tried to really bring this into uh, Stephen uh, Reese, I believe, 
Um, this is, you know, you, we can date these primary wells back to three, 930 AD that are still wow. producing water. Uh, to this day that the wow. Romans drilled. So anyway, yeah. it's it's pretty neat. Could be a real game changer in our water situation. And I ask that because, you know, what does all of our outdoor living guests have in common? Well, everything we do outdoors and grow relies on water. A big part of our uh, topics. And we've got uh, today edible landscape. Let's let's grow yeah. what, what what we grow is what we eat concept. Yeah. Let's dive right, into yeah. that. <laughs> it's never made, never made sense to me to plant something you can't eat. It's like, why plant it and nurture it and water it and fertilize it and maintain it if you can't eat it? And we were joking about one of the funniest things on that is uh, olive trees and how people oh, yeah. have olive trees <laughs> and then and then pay to have chemicals applied to it for it not to produce olives. <laughs> olives, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, there are people in town that will come and get those olives. Uh, I interviewed one of them, uh, a gentleman, a couple of years ago on the podcast, and that's what he does. He works with people in Phoenix to collect their olives and make olive oil. You know, and and uh, Perry out at Queen Creek Olive Mill, they're rock stars out there. They, You know, they're doing great work. So, yeah, don't poison your olive trees so it don't, <laughs> doesn't make olives. If, if you don't want them, just... Rip it out and plant something else that you're going to eat. There you go. Not a hard concept. So the first step in edible landscaping is? Mm -hmm. You think like nature. So about 30 years ago, I discovered this concept called permaculture. You guys may have heard me talking about it in the past. It is a thread of everything I think about. Permaculture, I like to call the art and science of working with nature. So how do we plug in and work in the flow of nature rather than against nature? And so when we're doing that, we need to start thinking like nature. And the first thing to do is observe. Spend time in your space. Take your shoes off, walk around your yard, and pay attention. And Romy, what things might you think about paying attention to if you're going to start growing things in your yard. <laughs> my my first thing, just because we have a lot of animals, is watch where you step. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> sun. There you go. Where's the sun? Where's the shade? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that is a death knell for a garden. If you put your garden in the wrong place, game over. You know, it's just not going to work. And one of the... A lot of work for nothing. A lot of work for nothing, yeah. So what you want to do is you want to pay attention to where the sun is at. And it's in different places in the sky during different seasons. So, you know, we're coming up on December 21st really quickly. What I tell people to do is set a reminder for noon on December 21st. That's the winter solstice. The sun is going to be lowest in the sky that day. And it's coming up quick, so you've got a great opportunity to do that. You don't have to wait, you know, half a year to do this, just a month. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and then the other thing I invite people to do is on March 15th and then on June 15th, do the same thing or June 21st. I guess it's the 21st, the June 21st. Do the same thing. Get out there and look to see where the sun is at in the sky. That will inform you a lot of, you know, a lot about where the sun's coming from. And then 
what you want to do is you want to pick the correct solar aspect for your garden. And what I mean by that is put it in the right place in your yard. And it looks like when you're standing in your yard and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, where's the sun at? And if it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you're in full sun on June 21st, you're likely in what we call a Western exposure. Western exposures get sun from noon until sundown. That's gonna be the hottest part of your yard. It's not an impossible place to grow, but you wanna pay close attention. Uh, Another step to take is, do you have a Northern aspect? A Northern aspect is on the, usually on the South side of your yard. This is where it gets a little confusing but it's it's got a northern exposure in that you don't ever get any sun on it. So it's important if you're going to grow groceries, if you're going to grow things, they need to get sun. So if you have if you're planting on the north side of a structure, it's probably not going to get a whole lot of sun and you're going to have, you know, it's going to be a harder place to grow. So really paying attention to the solar aspect uh, you know, on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis is going to do you a lot of good. Best place to put a garden is on an eastern exposure. An eastern exposure gets sun from sun up until noon, especially for a summer garden. And then the afternoon shade, it's, you know, keeps it from getting fried. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's kind of paying attention to where the sun's at. And then we have microclimates. Micro, unless you have a completely flat yard with no structures, no walls, no trees, no anything, you're going to have different microclimates. If you've been hiking before and you kind of hike down into a ravine and it gets like 10 degrees cooler, mm-hmm. that's a different microclimate. So what I want you to do is I want you to start paying attention to where it's cooler and where it's warmer in your yard and what is making it that way. So if what's going to make your yard warmer is concrete, gravel, dirt. What's going to make it cooler is shade trees, uh, grass, plants growing. You know, I live in a flood irrigated neighborhood and it's five to 10 degrees cooler in the summer here because of all the things that are growing in the space, which is really cool. And, you know, you said, you know, a flat yard, but I mean, even the eaves, you know, the overhang from your roof, I mean, that, that can create a microclimate underneath it. I mean, yeah. you can test that as well on cool, the occasional cool mornings. We might have frost. If you park close enough to your house, if you don't have a garage, that frost won't set in on your windshield. It's, it's the craziest thing, but it, you know, it, it's a microclimate. Right. And the next thing we're going to talk about when we come back from the break is soil and creating healthy soil and observing healthy soil to make sure that you're giving your trees a limb up. It's Farmer Greg. We do this the fourth Saturday of every month. If you've got a question about your uh, backyard edible landscape or anything urban farming related, you can join the conversation at one 767 4348 That's one 888 for you Text questions can be forward. Uh, sent to 411923, or you can email us at info at com. But I will say this from experience. Usually on Thanksgiving weekend, it, it, people are listening. 
They're not really motivated to do much else, though. <laughs> a little <laughs> trip go. to fan hangover. <laughs> Continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg, and you were going to talk about uh, ways to manicure the soil. But real quick, there's a couple more observations uh, when, when you're thinking like nature on your talking points. Let's just rattle those off real quick before we... Uh, move on to our soil prep. All right, so water. Pay attention to where your water is coming from. Most people think they have tap water and that's it. But when you really start paying attention to your space, you might find that there's other things. Um, second used water, which is legal in the state of Arizona is called gray water. And it is legal to do gray water systems in Arizona. And, and gray water, is any water that goes down any drain of your house except your toilet and your kitchen sink. You can use that in your landscape. So figure out how to get it outdoors. And um, there are people and plumbers that specialize in coming to your home and putting in gray water systems for you. Uh, like like uh, Farmer Greg said, for, for second reuse of that water. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's a second place you can get water besides straight tap water. There's rainwater. And people say this to me all the time, Greg, why on earth would I collect rainwater? Because it's free and here <laughs> um, for every thousand square feet of collection space that you have, when we get an inch of rain, we get 600 gallons of water. We had a rain event here at the urban farm a few years ago. We got three inches of rain in two hours. That was 29,000 gallons of water that fell on my property. In a couple hours. In a couple of hours. Yeah. That's like, that's a lot of water. So just pay attention to distributing it where you want it in your landscape so that it waters your landscape. Another place to get free water at is your condensation from your air conditioning unit. People kind of balk at me a little bit. Well, there's not very much, but it's water and it's free and it's dripping right off of your roof. So, you know, it's just, and you might have well water uh, besides city water. So just pay attention to where your water is coming from. And it's absolutely clean. Dad uses it to feed the dogs, water the dogs during the summer. And he doesn't ever have to worry about them running out of water because that's when you get the most condensation because that's when your air conditioning is working the hardest. So it, yeah. it's perfect sense. And he never has to worry about checking their water. And they've constantly got the, you know, basic, it's cleaner water than it's coming out of the tap. Yeah. Amen to that. Sounds like stacking functions again. Oh, that is a permaculture concept. Good on you, Gary D. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning. That's awesome. So I'll just define it real quickly since you brought it up. It's a permaculture concept where you have one asset and you use it multiple times. So the condensation water is coming from your air conditioning unit. It cooled your house. At my house, I have an evaporative cooler. So the evaporative cooler water is using to cool the house and there's an overflow on it. And then we use it a second time. Your dad's using it to water the dogs. Um, you know, I use it to water the plants. In the past, I put it into a fish pond first and then into the garden. So that's a triple use of it. So that's what stacking functions is. Um, and then the other thing that we wanna look at is outside forces. Uh, it could be the neighborhood kids. I had one of them knocking on my door yesterday. Thank you for him asking. He said, can I pick some oranges? <laughs> um, they're not quite ready yet, but, uh, you know, you got uh, 
uh, wild animals, you've got domestic animals. So pay attention to those kinds of things when you're, you know, looking at your garden and wanting to place a garden, but then there's soil and soil is the single most important thing that you can do for the success of your garden is build healthy soil and um, healthy soil. If you guys have listened to me preach about this in the past ever, I, you know what I've been on here for three years and I, I preach about this every chance I get. And that is there are five components of healthy soil. Dirt is one of them. If all you have in your yard is dirt, good luck growing anything. If you're just digging a hole and sticking a tree in dirt, good luck for that tree. It probably won't make it. So what you want to do is you want to add lots of organic matter. So the five components of healthy soil are dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. So the fix for broken dirt or the fix for dirt, if that's all you've got, is add lots and lots and lots of organic matter in the form of compost, in the form of planting mix, in the form of cocoa peat, in your pathways. I was over at a friend of mine's house the other day and he had put, oh my gosh, he's got he's got a size in his, he's got a football, uh, you know, a football field in his backyard. And over the course of the last five years, he has put like 12 inches of woody mulch on it. And it's broken down to this absolutely incredible soil. It's like, we would be lucky to have soil like that in our garden. Um, and so by adding organic matter, either for quick results in the form of compost or for long-term results in the form of woody mulch, that is going to help you be more successful in building this, uh, you know, this edible landscape that you want to build. And if you're just joining the broadcast or you've never heard Farmer Greg before, you know, his vision is to, you know, have Arizona be its own uh, self-sustaining food forest. You know, or if, if the supply chain, we've been hearing a lot about that. If it broke down, Boy. you know, if the grocery stores emptied out, what would you do? Well, if you had your own edible landscape, you just go out back, pick your salad and go on with your business. Yeah. I have what is called here an old growth food forest here at the Urban Farm. And, old, and we'll talk about that after the break. Old growth food forest. What? Old growth food forest. We'll talk about that right after this. Thanks for sticking with us through bottom of the hour news break. We have to do that every hour, top and bottom. That's just the way it is in the nature of the talk radio platform. So uh, let's get back to the to, to good news, like growing your, uh, and, and understanding what it. Uh, what'd you say? An old world old growth old food growth. forest. It's just something I've recently discovered. There's this guy named Zach Dokes who has been writing about it out there. And it's, it's a new term. When you do a search for old growth food forest on the internet, there's not much there about it. It's so this it's up and coming thing. And basically what it means is that I have been planting a particular kind of seed here at the urban farm for over 30 years. It's called an open pollinated seed. They're not hybrids and I let things go to seed. So at any given moment, I have five, 10, 15, 30 different things that I can go out and pick like you would in a forest. Oh. So right now the citrus is coming on right now. So we've got citrus 
And we've got uh, the cilantro that is grows wild in my yard is just coming up along with lettuce. Uh, I have nasturtiums that are just coming in, the cow peas and the sweet potatoes and the Jerusalem artichokes are all at the end of their cycle. So these are all being harvested now. Uh, it's, it's just, I live in a space at the urban farm that just grows food naturally like it would in nature. So I don't have, I do have garden beds, but in a lot of my places, I just have stuff that comes up. I have tomatoes coming up on the back patio from seed. And so you obviously have to let a certain amount of it go to seed. So oh, yeah. you're not ripping out uh, the garden mm-hmm. when you're done. You just let it, you know, leave a couple left on there and let it, let nature handle what the rest. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, uh, and there, there's, a, it's, it's a term that's up and coming and there's a lot of people that are doing it. And basically I just let things grow in my yard. And it's called a f- old, old, old growth forest food forest food forest old growth old growth food forest yeah i like that i'd like to get i would like to get the the melons because i've i've got uh you know know, about an acre of the property we put an orchard in and i'm trying to get uh, watermelon and cantaloupe and honeydew and pumpkins to grow in the orchard and and do that Mm, you mm -hmm. know just reseed themselves Mm mm-hmm if you do that, you're going to have to leave some of them behind and let, you know, let them rot in place or or harvest the seeds and spread the seeds yourself. Yeah. I've just got to figure out the watering situation because I can't mm. uh, I can't irrigate that whole area constantly. Right. So it's it's got to be like around, you know, the drip emitters where it would share with the tree, but it needs more. Anyway, that's a different story. I'm <laughs> <laughs> So in designing, what we're supposed to be talking about today is designing your food forest, I think. That's what that's what the topic was, right? Edible and, landscape, that's a food forest, sure. Yeah, it is. So um, we'll, we'll actually be doing some tours of my old growth food forest here in February, March, and April. If anybody wants to see it, you can visit urbanfarm.org for the tour information. Um, but when you're designing your space, so I mentioned sweet potatoes, and Jerusalem artichokes. I also mentioned um, nasturtiums and cilantro. And those are two different kinds of plants. Uh, The um, Jerusalem artichokes and the sweet potatoes are perennials of sorts. So what they do is they leave their bulbs. If we don't, we don't harvest all the sweet potatoes or, or Jerusalem artichokes out of the ground. Jerusalem artichoke is like a potato. It grows like a potato underground. So any that we leave behind, they come back up next year. So it's this automatic process where they come back year after year. And I call those, and it's not a true perennial. You know, a true perennial is my fruit trees. I got about 40 of them on the property that make fruit for me year after year after year. Uh, But those root crops, I like to call them perennials because there's literally nothing for me to do and they come back on their own. Um, and then the annuals are, uh, you know, the kales and lettuces and parsleys and all of that stuff, basil that just automatically comes up every year. Um, and you and say automatically the, comes up. I mean, you, we had to plant them once. You know, we had, and, yes, exactly. You, exactly. I planted you, you it You got to cultivate you got to do your, your soil, uh, Good, right. It goes recipe. to seed. <laughs> yep. Goes to seed, make seed, plant seeds starts the whole process over again. 
It's really quite cool. And you've said before you're a lazy gardener, and this is a you know a great way to not have to do it. <laughs> right. This is the ultimate in lazy gardening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, what you have to think of, though, think of your yard. It's your yard is a whole system. It's a it's a whole natural system. So you can't dissect it and pull it apart. You have to think of it as a whole whole system. And think taking that further, you kind of have to take your neighborhood as a whole system, because there's incoming incoming stuff, water and some pollution and stuff that you have to kind of pay attention to. Um, and if you're going organic and the people next door are spraying for bugs that, you know, those are the kinds of things as a whole system perspective that you have to pay attention to. Um, and then what you have to do, the next step is making sure that you know that my yard is different than your yard and we live across town, but my yard is also different than the neighbors a little bit, you know, the next door neighbor. So really what I suggest that people do is they start slow, experiment and do a little bit of a time, be successful. Cause you know, I've seen people that totally jump in, right? They jump in a thousand percent and they, they buy 50 fruit trees from me. <laughs> in fact, I got a phone call this week from a guy who bought 250 fruit trees, not from me, he bought, he bought 250 fruit trees and he sent me a picture of the place that he wants to plant them. And I'm just shaking my head. Not enough space. It's it's right out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> right out in the middle of the desert in a wash. So, you know, the first flood that comes through, it's going to wash away the trees. And being right out in the middle of the desert, there's javelina, there's deer. They're, you know, they're going to come along and eat them. So starting small is what I always, always recommend. Plant one or two or three trees plant a small garden, start small. It's, you know, you're going to be a lot, um, a lot better off in the long term. And the best way to start small is buy the, the most expensive thing in the store that you can grow at home. That's a great way to start small. Well, especially if you're on a limited budget, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking herbs folks. Absolutely. And he's kidding. (laughs) Um, and the simple, you said herbs, the simplest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy are herbs. So if you have a five foot by five foot plot in your yard, 25 square feet, you can actually grow a fair amount of food in that space. It's amazing how much food, you know, the smallest plant can produce and how, how little we really need once you start putting it in perspective and, and growing it yourself. Right. Yeah, I, um, I've said for years that lack only lives one place on the planet between our ears. Because <laughs> when, I look, when I look at the abundance in my yard, I'm getting ready to harvest citrus. I have 14 navel or navel-like oranges on my property. Most of them I eat myself. I'm probably over the course of the next four months going to harvest 400 pounds of citrus. <laughs> Again, most of it, most of it that I'll eat myself because I love citrus. There's no lack there. I have an apple tree in my backyard that I harvested 250 pounds of apples off this last season. Wow. That's that's a crazy amount of apples. And apple pies too. 
Apple tarts. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> apple chips. I, I dehydrate it. And then I make uh, every other year or so I make uh, applesauce because Heidi uses it in um, in uh, recipes instead of butter. Works really great. Apple butter. Mm. And you can make apple butter. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> apple butter pop tart. You haven't lived. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was looking it up real quick. I wanted to make sure that they were still uh, around. Uh, before I mention anything, but you were talking about, you know, you and Gary had, were talking about herbs. Your uh-huh. great growing for those herbs is a, a product called Fl- um, Flower Street Urban Gardens. And they oh, have the coolest, you know, rolling racks or they mount against your wall or a fence right outside your window. Just look at we- flowerstreeturbangardens.com yes. and you'll yes. see, uh, I mean, it. it you don't even use up any of your landscape in this process. Right. I love, love, love what Alex does. In fact, we should get him on the show as one of our guests one of these times. He's a rock star. I love what he has put together. And I'm looking through his gallery. He's even got one where he's got like a little rock cactus succulent garden. Uh, yeah. Somebody's growing. I, I hadn't seen that before. That was a great, that's a nice sharp yeah. look. And I know he works with, uh, I know he works with the uh, D-backs. Um, and they're doing community gardens with them. And yeah, what Flower Street, man, what they're doing is rocking. So, and we have had Alex on, but it's been a long time. So it, it's due time. Yeah. We'll, we'll work on yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Love so, it. Love it. Love it. So, anyway, uh, back to our talking points as we're uh, winding through <laughs> the, the end of our third segment and all of our bunny trails. Um, I think lasagna gardening would be a great uh, lead in ah. from this conversation. Very good. So lasagna gardening, um, or what we in permaculture called sheet mulching, there is a book out there on the market called lasagna gardening. It's basically a quick way to build healthy soil. Now, when I say quick, I mean six months, not six minutes. And what you do is you put down a layer of, and I in the past I've used alfalfa hay, you have to be really careful about straw that you're using. If you're using straw, make sure that it's not Bermuda straw. Because <laughs> they bale Bermuda and there's seeds in there. So if you're getting straw, make sure you're getting wheat straw or you're getting alfalfa. And I just fluff it up in the space and I put down about a six inches, six inch layer. And you can use leaves, you know, raked up leaves from your yard. Um, you put down about six inches of this stuff fluffed. And then you get some manure. I happen to use my chicken manure and I just take a shovel full and I kind of spread it loosely, a shovel full over the, you know, the six inch layer that you have there. And then you put another six inch layer down. And, uh, and then you put a little bit more manure and then you put another six inch layer down and you put down more manure. So you, you've got this sheet mulch bed that is 20, 24, 36 inches thick that is fluffed from leaves and stuff. And what happens over the course of six months is it breaks down into this, you know, this three inch layer of absolutely amazing soil. Going into our final segment here with Farmer Greg, uh, what what do you have for us in this last segment? I'm going to try and not interrupt and and just let you <laughs> let you plow through. So we're talking about creating a food forest, and there's this concept in edible landscaping or creating food forests 
called, it's, it's basically the seven layers. There's seven layers of a food forest. And what it is, is it's the overstory trees is layer one. So the tallest layer of trees. And what we want for these and mesquite and ash trees, cottonwood trees make really great overstory trees. They're providing a shade. The reason I particularly like mesquite and Palo Verdes as overstory trees is because they let some sun through. They're not a dense shade. Um, and they're also nitrogen fixers. And basically what that means is that they're harvesting nitrogen from the soil and the air. And so when they drop all those little leaves on the ground, that's nitrogen, which is a fertilizer. Um, and they so obviously are native, so they're less water and better drought exactly. resistant than you know, exactly. ashes or... Right. So that's layer one. You're over over top trees. Is that what you call them? Over, over story. Over story. Yeah, over story. And don't rake and throw those leaves away. It absolutely drives me nuts that uh, people rake up their leaves, throw them away, and then bring in mulch. It's like leaf mulch from leaves is amazing for your garden. So if you don't want leaves in a particular place, find a place in your yard you can rake them to so they can break down and that's making your soil. So the second layer is the understory tree layer. This is, uh, you know, shorter trees, fruit trees close to your house. Uh, so you got your big tall trees, then the understory is your uh, smaller trees. Then there's a shrub layer. Uh, you know, shrubs are, uh, edible shrubs are berries, um, there's a mulberry that's an edible shrub. So there's, you know, that's the, the layer that's, you know, like zero to three feet off the ground. Then there's the herbaceous layer. And the herbaceous layer is your herbs and vegetables, your kales and basils and those kinds of things. So that's your garden layer, essentially. Uh, and then there's the root layer. So I mentioned earlier that I grow sweet potatoes and Jerusalem artichokes. Both of those are root crops. So they're, you know, they're growing in the ground. In fact, I had a guy here a couple of weeks ago helping me prep my front bed for planting for the fall. And we were cleaning out a bed that had a bunch of sweet potatoes in it. And there were literally sweet potatoes that had a little root going into the ground, but the entire sweet potato was on top of the ground. They were that easy to harvest. So that's that's the root layer. And then there's the ground cover layer uh, and the vining layer. The vining layer is the layer that kind of is like grapes and sweet potatoes. Um, sweet potatoes love to climb cowpeas. So th that's the seven different layers of, of a food forest. And if you, you know, basically all I did this morning is I typed in seven layers of a food forest and a shirt ton of information comes up. So if you're interested in that, um, you know, you can definitely check that out. Um, we are also, the Urban Farm is also, I haven't told you this yet, we're offering a permaculture design course coming up this spring. A permaculture design course is a 72-hour deep dive into permaculture and how to implement permaculture. And I call it the art and science of working with nature. How do you implement sustainable and regenerative systems in your yard? And so if anybody's interested, they can email me at greg at urbanfarm.org and we can talk about that. Um, and in our permaculture design course, we talk about the seven layers of a food forest and how to actually implement them in your yard. And that's uh, urbanfarm.org. You could go sign up there. You have a ton of information there. You also have your own oh. uh, podcast. You do two or th I do. three a week. 
Right. Yeah. I used to do three a week. That is way too much work. Um, uh, so I do right now we're doing one a week. Okay. And it comes out on Fridays, but we, the urban farm podcast has 650 episodes that are out and, um, yeah, I just, you know, I do it cause I just like with you, we love chatting about this stuff. So I get to bring in all kinds of incredible guests that I get to learn from. That's how I learn a lot of my stuff. And, you know, I'm the same way. It's not what you know, it's who you know and uh, what you can learn from them. There you go. There you go. And uh, we talked about watering and uh, that kind of stuff uh, earlier. And I have a, if anybody's interested, they can go to urbanfarmwater.com and download some videos on uh, rainwater harvesting and like that. And, you know, speaking of water, sometimes we do get that statement of, you know, well, we don't have enough water in the desert to grow our own. Well, I don't, they're not taking into account the amount of water it takes to bring food in. I mean, everything, shipping, transportation, that all consumes a massive amount of water. The uh, creation of oil, the the trucking, you know, I mean, all of these things, you know, it's actually better to and more uh, water smart to grow it here than exactly. be sourcing it and shipping it in from, you know, Mexico, Peru. Argentina, Peru, exactly. Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I get that. I get that a couple times a year. People say, well, why grow food here? And it's like the environmental impact. And it's not just the water. It's the plastic that the stuff is wrapped uh-huh. in. It's the environmental impact of shipping it for a hundred miles or a thousand miles or 10,000 miles. It's just, you know, grow your own food because here's the deal. And I, you know, I'm not a right winger. I'm not a left winger. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, but what I know is that we had two instances last year, COVID and a huge storm in Texas that took out a lot of our food system. Our grocery stores were empty. The government's not going to be there to fix it. We have to figure out how to grow our own food so that we're food secure here in the desert. We have to do that. It's... I don't know what else I can say. We have to do that. I, I, I that's think why that, I do what I do. I think that's your mic drop, Farmer Greg. Uh, thank you. 